If people bringing tetanus back from beyond the grade is any indication, we're fucked. <laughs> I don't care how many people, like, you get vaccinated if you want it. Like, that's fine. That's good. I'm vaccinating myself. I got my first shot. Hell yeah. But, like, it's going to keep mutating with all the people who don't yeah. want to get the vaccine for whatever reason. And unless we can get them on board, I don't know how the fuck this is going to work. <laughs> Yeah, I remember at like the very beginning of all this, I was telling someone, you know, worst case scenario is that it comes back in 10 years, like the Black Plague, even worse, you know? Well, this is the trial run. This is the starter pack. We're going to lose. Well, I hate to be the very bad news here, but essentially, if you're listening to the epidemiologist, uh, this is the new flu, and it's going to be with us for quite some time. I look yeah. dope in a mask, though. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're going to have to always have like lockdowns and masks, you know, but it is going to be like an ongoing thing that we're Oh, no, you didn't hear me. I look dope in a mask. It's never coming yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I'm hearing is I just need to invest in cooler masks. And that's fine. Honestly, that's half of my face. I don't have to put in makeup. It's fine. I was actually about to say that, Rachel, like how much money I have saved on makeup and face wash in the last year is is astonishing. Honestly. Okay, that you're yeah, not washing your face. Yeah, because forget that weird. the makeup also has a taking off process that I takes guess, okay, time and money. It's like fucking annoying. It's yeah, like no, the only part I hate about makeup. No, it seems like fine. You're painting your yeah. face. I love doing makeup for fun, and I hate doing it if I feel like I have to. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if I'm doing go. art on my face, hell yeah. If I'm doing art on my face because otherwise they might not pay me, yeah. that's shitty. Yeah. Yeah. That's annoying. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like I, I, I wear makeup when I enjoy it, and I get cranky when I have to put it on to like quote look professional. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, to like slam right into the like what we've well been no with. no because I want I got one piece for this because there is a there's a place down the street from my house. It is a yeah. parlor, and for a little while they like right at the beginning, like about last year. So you know March 2020, they got a sign that said "Die Gorgeous." Wow. Which is, well, okay, so it <laughs> later they got us, about six months later, they got a sign that indicated this is permanent makeup tattoos. It is a Whoa. brand of permanent makeup tattoos. It is not a political statement about the need to open up beauty parlors. It's just that they're permanently tattooing makeup to people's faces, so... Well, I mean, if you like the way you wear your makeup and you're old lady, you get your makeup tattooed. Fucking live your life. I, I mean, no, like, I'm down with no, face tattoos no, if that's how you want to no. look, and you if you know you want to look away and you... Right, I mean, that your thing, you, but you've got to be committed to that, though. You've got to be, like, seriously committed to that That's look all forever. face tattoos, though. Like, that's I mean, it's different than other face tattoos. Like, it's, the, I mean, dots, eyeliner, whatever. Listen... As a person who has a full back piece and, and, and another prominent tattoo, I wouldn't commit to a face tattoo personally, but that is my choice. But when it comes to makeup, like I want to be able to change my look and tattooed makeup just has never made any fucking sense to me. But that's God, me. right? Because makeup trends change so much so quickly. You know what quickly. I mean? Like even like just eyebrows. Like if you compare eyebrow trends right now to eyebrow trends like circle Y2K where everybody's trying to bring back now. Can we please not bring back the overplucked eyebrows. Like for a lot of reasons, the biggest one just being they don't grow back after a while. And then when big bushy brows are in, you no longer have them to work with. Yeah. And and that pressure to like wear makeup to be employable is real. Like I had my first yeah, it is. interview as a trans woman, like as out trans woman mm -hmm. last week. And it was like, oh crap, I like have to put on at least mascara. Yeah. If I if I don't, I'll be considered sloppy. Yeah, if you look sloppy or it just people think you don't care. But if I put on eyeshadow, like 
there'll be a discussion about how I went over the top, right? right? Yes, exactly. It's like you have to, well, I mean, this is just the nature of being a woman, you know, across regardless of what you're assigned at birth, right? The nature of being a woman is to be constantly walking this tightrope where you're either not enough or too much. Mm-hmm. And it's completely context dependent. It's completely subservient to the other person's like opinion of what a woman should be. It's a bunch of horse shit. It's sexism. It's bad, right? Uh, one thing I did want to bring it to though, because I saw this in Star Trek and this was like, early oh, next that, generation that, that, hold on a second that reminds me welcome <gasps> everyone to gay space communism america's possibly the alpha quadrant's favorite podcast that may or may not be a tal shiar and section 31 cooperative psyop i'm paul byron one of your numerous hosts i'm rachel khan i'm enthusiastic i'm Corey archibald i don't know what i am i'm amy hassel <laughs> oh and wow look it's a guest hi how's it going uh damian williams Oh, we love Damien. Hi, Damien. Hi, Damien. Hi, Damien. I don't know what that voice was. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, longtime listeners will recall Damien from our uh, Fuck, Mary Kill robot edition. And well, uh, obviously a more coherent discussion about uh, sort of robotics and just the nature of consciousness and life in Star Trek and in general, as he does a lot of cool thinking and talking about the future. Yeah. I do enjoy those kinds of things, and, and Star Trek is pretty much uh, 100% primed for that kind of discussion. So always happy to be able to spend some time talking about the weirder aspects of the future and the right. possibilities therein. <laughs> so like, we were talking about gender fuckery and gender presentation, and I wanted to bring it back to this thing because I noticed a thing, and I forgot which episode it was, but I'll try to find it, and if we can, we'll put it in the show notes. But I was watching like early TNG and in the background, like they didn't draw attention to it, but just in the background, a man walked by in one of the miniskirt uniforms. And I was just like, hell yeah, I didn't even see that before. That's amazing. Yeah, they dropped it, but it's so cool. I've seen that grab. Yeah, Yeah. they stopped doing it, I assume because of like network pressures or whatever. But the fact that they came in there with that kind of energy of just like, yeah, the dudes wear the miniskirts too. What? Men have nice legs too, y'all. The CBS executive just stepped to go to the bathroom and Gene was like, go, 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 Steve, now, go, go. That's what I'm saying. Like, just slip it in there like the Ahura kiss. And you're just like, okay, great. We don't have, I'm sorry, we don't have a take where there's not the miniskirt guy in it. I'm sorry, Mr. Fred. Yep. Mr. Fred is the classic wasp name that all white guys had in the 60s. Yes, I remember hearing a a discussion about them planning to do that just as a kind of more often thing. Like, yeah, sometimes uh, people wear more kind of miniskirt uniforms because they like them. And that's really the end of that discussion. And then it just didn't didn't end up going anywhere, unfortunately. And it was, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Most of the actors don't have his legs that are as nice as that guy. Like if you had a lot of those kind of mechanic-y guys that were in that show, it's not, it doesn't look, I mean... Well, and I think it's kind of like how Riker went from Bill to Will. And there was like a mm. quiet, they just changed it. And they were just like, we didn't call him Bill. And it's like, well, no, they were like <laughs> trying to update it to somebody's aesthetic preference, right? Somebody yeah. said, no, Bill sounds too old guy. Bill is yeah. like my dad's name. We don't want to give him my dad's name. We want to call him something new and trendy like Will. And now, you know, there's an entire generation of Wills. Right. Well, he is the sexy face of the Enterprise. Look. The extent to which my, like, sexual preferences were just strictly formed by Will Riker cannot be overstated. However, mm-hmm. Bill would have taken away from it for me because that was quite literally my grandfather's name. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a little clunky. It's, it's a, he's going to teach in woodshop. Bill Riker. It's <laughs> Bill Riker. I do uh, teach woodshop and uh, health down at uh, Starfleet High School. 
Well, I know my husband's name is Bill, but it fits for him, Fuck. so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and wow, he's a mechanic, so I think it still fits with the aesthetic. See? See? Point yeah, proven. I have nothing wrong with Bills, to be clear. I personally no, I know. feel weird dating somebody with the same name as, like, my grandfather or brother. Which is a whole separate thing, because my brother's an Alex, so that's, like, an entire category of men and women I can't date. <laughs> so, well, let's get started the way we usually do, which is, uh, what are we watching lately? Starship shows of a kind? Corey, what have you been watching? You still chewing through TAS? Uh, no, I finished TAS. And I did uh, last last time I talked about I'm doing so I'm still in the middle of my chronological viewing of all Trek. But man, some of that early content is just it, it's a struggle. And I've also just had a lot of stuff going on. So I haven't had as much time to watch. So I, I haven't made it past the first Star Trek movie in my chronological viewing yet. It's in part because I'm still like emotionally recovering from the lengthy pan shots that you did warn me about, but I still was not adequately prepared for. No, you can. You have to be walking into the theater so catastrophically high in the seventies, and be like, "Cool, this is yes. the thing we're gonna do tonight." And it, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna have to like take a little bit more time to to process that before I move on to the next film. So I've been giving myself a little bit of a break, and um, I've been enjoying some Futurama rewatching. Oh. Nice. They, I mean, they have one of the best Star Trek episodes themselves with the one that they didn't call We Got Everyone But Scotty, which they are their, their Let's Put Everyone <laughs> in a Jar episode. Which... Yeah, yeah. Oh, anybody else doing a good one? Got anything good watching? Well, I, um, I've taken the polar opposite approach to Corey, and I've set up a little spreadsheet with a random number generator that dictates my Star Trek viewing. So I've been all over the place, and I can really sympathize with the, the early episode issues. Last episode I watched was a TOS episode that just appalled me. There was um, issues with costuming, issues with acting, probably the best Shatner tantrum like ever recorded. Oh my god. Oh yeah, yeah. Which um, episode was this? TOS Season 3 Episode 4. Okay. Um, Go yeah, on. So, so far I've gotten, this is my roles so far, uh, Enterprise 1-1. Ow. Yeah, yeah, that was That's number one. That's a crit one. fail. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. The series is good. I don't want to slag it off too badly, It, but yeah. oh boy, yeah. Yeah, right off the bat. But then I did Voyager 3-3 and I just had to re-roll. Like that wasn't... That wasn't going to happen. It's can like you, a. Can you give us a little better than three three for those of us? Because one one's a pretty obvious. Oh, oh no! Yeah, so season three, episode three is like this silly freaking episode where it's one of the Harry gets kidnapped episodes and ah, popular. Yeah. It's, yeah oh, that one sucks. You know, it's like a combination of Tom is a horn dog and Kim gets kidnapped and nothing but else. <laughs> you understand? They are twins. <laughs> I say the best episode I've watched so far has been the one DS9 episode I've rolled. <laughs> well, that 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 tracks. That it is out. the best series uh, with the disputable yeah. possibility of discovery. Damien, how are you? What do you? What do you? You're you're also trapped inside still. You're probably yeah. watching some some of this beautiful comfort food television where nothing terrible really ever happens. Um, I haven't been rewatching any Trek recently, but I have been rewatching a lot of Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is newly on Hulu. You've spoken strongly and well about it a number of times in my, well, at least in my viewing, but... Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of that show, and it is definitely my emotional support Terminator franchise, so that's been uh, my most recent... I mean, Terminator franchise ain't bad for a grandpa paradox on legs. And yeah, it's uh, and I mean, it's one of those things where the they really background the presence 
of, of Kyle Reese, and he, he becomes more of this weird animating specter throughout the whole thing. So it's one of my, honestly, my favorite take. And I, I kind of appreciate that Hulu finally has it again. They had it a while ago and then got rid of it. And, then, you know, the streaming shuffle. So that's been what's on my plate recently, as well as uh, Alan Tudig's Resident Alien new on sci-fi. I've been enjoying that. I like him. He's great. I think um, the actor that played Tom Paris directs some of those episodes, right? I think so. Bring it all the way back to Star Trek. And to think that he was in the Academy. (laughs) Whoever dreamed he would go so far. I have been watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure 1, which is a show I was like, oh, this is slightly homoerotic. About oh, honey, season, wait till you about, get to yeah, season no, no, four. About midway through season two, when the two best friends are scaling the oily pillar yes. with only their hands and like everything about the pillar men. Yes, this is a little I love gay, JoJo huh? so fucking much. Like pillar men sure aren't wearing a lot of clothes, and I get they're the perfect being, but golly. Oh my god, no, and never I mean, put, cars can fucking get it. I don't even that's the one cartoon character I'm a hundred percent sure I would bang. Everyone's got a band name. It's so good. But I oh, but but I, I did show. actually watch an episode of Star Trek thinking about what I kind of wanted to talk about today. So haha, I've done a fucking transition. Watch this. Um, Voyager, critical care. Uh, this is late season. Uh, so this episode starts off with Tom and Perry in hockey outfits going to sick bay and there it is star trek trying to be funny where they are basically setting up what would be them having to tell a big excuse about how they weren't playing hockey but are definitely wearing hockey outfits except it turns out the doctor's been stolen by some guy and taken to a shitty shitty planet where they basically have our healthcare system yep um uh, ultimately, like the story, so he is taken there and sold there, but they talk a lot about a, let's see, there is a treatment coefficient, which basically is the rationing system for healthcare there. And the term, it's much more complicated than that from the the allocator and whose protocols they all follow really resonated with me. Re- and so that, because that's, I hear a lot of that recently. Also alongside, you've got a lot more Starfleet security fuck-ups. Tuvok just lets this guy walk off with the goddamn doctor. What do you, What is your job? What do you do? And yeah, there's an interesting, like, so the doctor teaches the alien who has hired this allocator to distribute their health care. Uh, like, oh, yeah, no, no, here's how 10% but how budget incentives work. And like, oh, you make sure you use up all your resources so you because otherwise they'll cut you and make sure you ask for 10%. So they'll give it to you and let's increase your and like, but then also gives the allocator a disease and misclassifies his idea, like basically poisons him. And <laughs> turns out his entire ethical protocol was like, oh, yeah, no, that was fine. You did right. Yeah, I don't know. So I think that's a fun place for us to talk about because I wanted to get into uh, sort of the way we treat and talk about medical stuff in Star Trek because I know that that's a part of it, like at least a part of the way that Damien thinks about and talks about it, and it's something we haven't gotten into yet and it's the yeah. way we deal with yeah people who are not all that they wish they could be because they're sick or have a headache or they keep tearing their arm because they really suck at kayaking. Miles! Miles's continual desire to go on a kayak and tear his rotator cuff. But yeah, critical care, this episode where it's like, oh, well, watching this, you're like, oh, so you can do like socialism. Like you can do a centrally planned system where it's still super unjust. Like no one has to have any money. You just show up and like, I'm sick. Like, well, you're only this much of a person to us. So we're gonna not going to treat you. Like ultimately, like the, the, the tension is between minors who have a chronic disease that is treatable by something that is being used in the upper levels as a preventative arterial deterioration preventative measure for fancy pants administration 
administrators of, well, essentially, right, water plants that treat an entire continent. But, like, they're killing kids who are working the waste processing facilities. Exactly. And the intersection of, like, who gets to be seen as a person in Voyager was always one of those things that was, like, really kind of at the top of its narrative agenda. And this was just another one of those ways where it kind of dove into that, right? Like, that question of who's really a person whose rights are actually being privileged, uh, who's being seen to, who's being helped, and in what way. And so having the doctor, the EMH, be the viewpoint, the lens through which we look at this when he is, you know, at this point, serious, serious ideas about what it means for him to be a person and then having to be have that shoved in front of him <laughs> through his through the lens of his job and his programming. Is, well, that episode of- ends with him asking Seven of Nine to run a diagnostic. He's like, um, I I poisoned a guy and helped right. and threatened him. Am I is my are my ethical subroutines functioning or is he evolving? Was that a like by the books ethical thing? Yeah, and so like that that question of what is happening to him and how he changes based on the kinds of interactions that he has, the way that he becomes more through his job and through the different ways that he's made to think of his job that go way beyond what he was ever initially programmed for or designed to be about. Like every time he encounters a new ethical medical dilemma, he has to think in different ways and and operate and try to understand himself and the, the people that he works with in different ways kinds of relationships and so yeah this place where he's kind of confronted with like okay what is medicine supposed to be about what does it mean to be a doctor what does it mean to have a a system of health when that system systematically mischaracterizes uh, and mistreats and marginalizes and oppresses people under the guise of giving them medical care I mean, it's, yeah, like, I mean, that is that they start and the allocator is like in this situation was brought in as an outside force, but it is capital. It is the spreadsheet. It is the healthcare conglomerate owned by the hedge fund whose objective is, well, yeah, you wanted me to make it orderly. So I have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Whenever you create, and this is a deeply anarchist sentiment I'm expressing, but whenever you create that kind of bureaucracy where power gets stopped at certain individuals who basically act as bottlenecks, like those positions become power positions, right? And people will misuse them because they have it. And so like, you can't do it that way, right? You can't do it that way. You can't do it by algorithm because the algorithm's going to be racist. Like you have to just every single day get up and do the hard work of talking to people. And nobody like, no technocrats want to do that or admit that is like a necessary and unavoidable part of the process. But I really think like that's the key here. Well, I think Rachel, like something that what you just said actually kind of fits really well with the point that I wanted to make. And that is thinking about this episode in particular, it's interesting that an artificial program, an artificial life form, uh, the EMH, had to go and teach that culture how to treat people more humanely. And it raises the question for me, was it his programming that drove that? Was it his ethical subroutine? Or is it the fact that he had spent time on this ship with his crew exploring his own humanity, exceeding the sum of his programming and becoming effectively more of a, of a true life form? Is that what drove it? Is that what informed that, that kind of engagement? I'm curious to hear Damien's thoughts on that. So I think the you're, you're going to always hear a lot of this from me. It's both. 
it's always both. Like the framework, and this is one of the things that I liked Voyager for, but I wished we'd gotten more of the framework of subroutines for the EMHs for all the holographic life that we meet over the course of Voyager is baseline parameterization, right? Everything that they do and that they become. Whoop, whoop. Jargon alert. Jargon yeah. alert. <laughs> Give me a let's let's unpack that one a second, please. So what I mean by that is you have the set of ideas, uh, basic goals, basic training, basic codes, parameters that the EMH or any holographic life or a holographic program uh, in the Trek universe is supposed to hit, right? Like it's supposed to fulfill certain end goals and it's supposed to, to meet particular sets of needs. And the idea that we're given in the show over the course of several shows, the idea is that they were supposed to be emergency programs, right? Like they're supposed to have very basic frameworks for very specific types of emergencies they are not meant to be there all the time they're not meant to adapt and learn and grow in the way that the doctor does but he does because they don't have another doctor because he does have to be there all the time because he is allowed to continue building on that basic program those baseline parameters he's allowed to investigate their implication he's allowed to say okay well if i'm programmed to do this if I am made to meet these particular ends and the goals of medical care and the goals of, of biomedical ethics, if that's my purpose, how do I make sure that I meet that need in these situations that I've never encountered before, that I was never programmed for, that I was never meant by my designer to engage with? And the fact right. that he's given that ability to kind of self-reflect, introspect, and think about that, to make decisions about that is kind of, kind of amazing. Well, he's the only one, too. Like, remembering that all the rest of them are, they clean out the inside of mine cores or something. Like, all of them are miners except him. Yeah. The entire program was scrapped. That's why the Dr. Zimmerman is so mad to see his daddy is so mad to see him. It's very weird. Like, yeah, he, so he is truly unique in a lot of ways that way. Yeah, no, exactly. I want to like take a step back and talk about like even just the idea of ethical subroutines at all, right? Like not even about like AI being applied to an ethical subroutine, but just the idea of writing something like that into code in the first place, right? Because I mean, for people who code, right, we all basically understand like binary means yes or no. It means go, don't go. And there's an extent to which that can be like correlated or uh, not like correlated, but related to compared to human neurons firing as go, no go, right? But when we talk about ethics, when we talk about, you know, ethical actions, they are fundamentally emotional processes, right? Like these are things based in lower parts of our brain than our prefrontal cortex. This is stuff like happening in the thalamus and the amygdala. And it's it's something fundamentally different from deduction, right? It's about mirroring. It's about empathy. It's about connecting with the other, right? And so when we start talking about ethical subroutines, I'm like, where do you even start with something like that? You know, how could you even begin to program something like that? So the basic idea is, I mean, there's a number of people who work in uh, AI ethics who work in like the idea of what it would mean to make moral AI who talk about like exactly that question. And so uh, this guy named John Sullins, who works out of the University of Sonoma out in California, and he like a lot of his work is specifically about the, the difference between an ethical agent and a moral agent. 
like an ethical agent has programs and routines that tell it how to act within a framework of, um, you know, specific kinds of ethical rules, right? But a moral agent is different because a moral agent isn't just behaving by dint of a checklist. It's making specific choices. It's making contextualized and very nuanced adaptations based on what it thinks the right thing to do is. So if we're moral agents, we're trying to adapt to a situation based on the idea that we know that a checklist ain't going to cut it. And so there's a case to be made that the doctor, the EMH on Voyager, is at the end of the day, a moral agent, is an artificial moral agent, because he's not just following his subroutines anymore. He's not just trying to go based off of that checklist. But it's because he starts off as this ethical agent, right? He starts off as this, you know, this agent of being able to just follow this checklist and, and meet its needs within a particular context, a very specific parameter, a very specific window, rather right. than being able to, to do that kind of more uh, fluid, nuanced adaptation. He's like, I'm supposed to be for emergencies. <laughs> right. And then he's like, well, I'm not just for emergencies. And somehow he's able to assimilate that information into himself, right? And I right. guess in the process. It's interesting, though, it is kind of a transmutation, right? Like that, that moment of action is sort of what changes between a program and a being right yeah and well they spend a lot of time in season three talking about sort of adding to his program in that way and i ran across it in my randomizations it's either episode two or 18 in voyager season three but he starts like trying to incorporate historical personalities oh yeah and he ends up going like berserk yes like that's a great one the converse right like like part of growing a personality is learning the human experience of empathy, but then he's also experiencing rage and sort of like irrational fear. Yeah. 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 And so like, that was one of the, the places where I kind of, I've always wished that like Trek works on the basis that they're going to, they're going to do whatever they're going to do week to week to make a story. Um, But one of the places where I kind of do wish that they would throw some kind of through line forethought through a a lot of the building that they do is this idea of like, okay, so if he is building his personality in this particular way, that's going to have particular implications, right? Like that's, if he's building it based on like just going and finding uh, as much of a personality workup uh, the data of a personality that he can find and incorporating that into his existing data, that's going to have implications. If he is gradually building that kind of personality, if he is integrating experience and then thinking about that experience, introspecting, contemplating on it, that's going to have a different set of implications. This conversation you could have about like whether he should be able to do it faster anyway because he's, uh, he's a computer. But that's a, that's a different conversation, I think. I mean, I think probably even if you're talking about like quantum computing, you would still need to have some kind of reasonably long delay for that kind of information to assimilate, right? Like our brains are the most complicated computers in existence that we're aware of anyway. And I mean, they take a real long time to figure this stuff out. Right. That's just sort of the nature of complexity and of human complexity and, you know, irrationality as such. Exactly. 
So yeah, and I think like there's so there's this thing that we can talk about a bit, this idea of how things get integrated into us. How do we how do we learn? And the doctor wants to try to learn to be as much as he possibly can as quickly as he can. And so he's trying all of these different ways of testing his personhood, expanding his personhood, both within the quote unquote expected normal ways, right? Like this so-called normal idea of how a human becomes a human, but also by using the tools at his disposal as a holographic life form and incorporating those, accepting those and saying, this is what I am. And this is what that allows me to do and to be. So yeah, like there's a bridge there towards like this whole, the ship of Theseus thing. Well, I mean, so the question of that really is like, so with Vic Fontaine, with the doctor, not so much with uh, Moriarty, because that was just sort of a, oh, let's spontaneously build one. But a lot of them is basically if y'all would charge your phones more and they would stay on (laughs) and then they would develop more personality and not be Alexa, but then just be like phone doctor or whatever. They could be your pal. It's not, uh, you know, try and form some solidarity with your AI colleagues and compatriots. This is one of the important rules you could take away from this in general. So a lot of what I was thinking, what you're talking about and what is making me think of the idea of utilitarianism as metrics and because like the kind of moral decision you're talking about to to take it to it sort of the the usual easy place is like it's the trolley problem. It is more than this. But if you have a car and it is pointing at five people and one people and it must make these decisions like let's say like you have to caveat out that the brakes could work it could just catch itself on fire throw itself in the hard reverse but it must make some level of moral choice what are the inputs it is going to be using to make those decisions and it, i hate that it, this treatment coefficient is a term i'm going to keep using for ever and i wonder i mean obviously it is this but how much of it can be done can you do it i guess i mean i suppose that's part of the questions that y'all answer while studying this but does it it feels like ultimately it falls into the it does fall into the bureaucracy problem that uh, rachel likes to hammer on and rightly so that if you have a number juicing the number will be your objective yep regardless of what that number is supposed to point at no it's exactly right and that i mean we see that in the bureaucracy in general, we see that in job training, we see that in machine learning, you know, like that, that question of, you know, we make a decision to try to aim toward a thing, and then we aim toward that thing to the exclusion of what other things we then classify as outliers or quote unquote irrelevant or any number of other ways to dismiss that thing that we didn't expect that we don't want to try to categorize, right? So like that question, of like, what are we trying to target? How are we trying to target it? And how do we get from a place where we're just trying to target a number where we're trying to hit a goal habitually to something where we're actually trying to do the the broader moral interrogation of it, right? Whether we're talking about in healthcare uh, or whether we're talking about in the decision-making of uh, machine intelligences like that either way it goes we're having to talk about this question of like you can't just give it a target to hit because it will hit that target and nothing else. Which I mean, a lot of this is just us trying to not have to do the hard work of everything. Like, which fair because too I, bad. I, sometimes work is hard. No, I don't want to do the hard work of shoveling shit. It sucks. You can't automate the human moment. You can't it's true. do. It's not possible. You can't do it. I'm sorry. It's not possible. I mean, have you ever tried a vibrator? <laughs> okay, listen. Leave my Hitachi out of this. Hey, 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 hey! The clit hammer still is a tool. It is not automation. Yeah, what Paul said. <laughs> this conversation took a turn. Yeah. That's <laughs> a fallacious assertion. I retract it. Show me a single episode of this show that didn't get at least a little horny.
Look, Luxwana Troy is here to have sex with everyone on the ship and then leave. Even you, the goopy boys in the buckets. Um, it seems worth mentioning her. that I identify with her more than any other character in any of the series, actually. <laughs> what? What? Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> That's not shocking at all. You've met. We've okay. So Damien. So transporters. I, yeah. I I feel so like all right. So we will I will make the the stock case against right. It is going to just replicate a bag of meat on the other side. If it shares your objectives, that would be awesome. But there's it is not you because it is being reconstituted out of materials that are not the materials that you were disassembled from. This as a general critique of the transporters and sort of the dangers of them. But uh, I know that you you hate this and I, I wanted I to do. let you yell about it. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's a number of, of transporter conversations that we could have. We can have the the original Let's start, with the, let's start with the with the ship of Theseus sort of variant, yes. I think is the yeah. Exactly. The original problem is the, the ship of Theseus question of who comes out the other side of a transporter. And so for those of you who did not watch WandaVision and did not just recently a uh, crash course in an ancient philosophical problem through the eyes of a Marvel property, the ship of Theseus goes something like this. You've got the Greek hero Theseus. His ship is you know sailing around the Mediterranean and as it sails around, uh, it gets damaged, right? You get damaged, and then you uh, have to replace a board. You replace that board. You get damaged again. You got to replace a sail. You replace that sail. You get damaged again. You got to replace the mast. You replace the mast. You replace a nail here or there. You replace the rudder. You replace the steering wheel. You replace some oars. All over the place, you replace bits and pieces, right? At the end of the day, not a single component of that ship that left the harbor is the same component when it comes back. Is it still the same ship? Theseus is still the captain. It's most of the same guys. So crews die. That's just something. There's red shirts on. I mean, it, uh, sure. You're you're a Greek hero sailing around the Mediterranean. Your crew's going to die bit by bit. Absolutely. That happens too. But now you take that same question. You, you put it off to the side for a second and chew on it for a little while. And now while you're chewing on it, somebody goes back, sails around the Mediterranean, follows your exact same path, takes every piece of ship that you discarded overboard and puts it back together, makes it something that kind of looks like a ship out of the pieces and the remnants. Mary Shelley's Ruth's Chris. <laughs> ship of Theseus. Exactly. Is that Theseus' ship? The question is the question of identity, right? Like who's which one gets to be called Theseus' ship and why? Not just like, you know, do we say that the ship that Theseus captains no matter what is Theseus' ship? Okay, then I'm gonna uh go outside, take your car, take your bike, take your your front porch, I'm gonna I'm gonna tear it down, tear it to pieces, throw it away, and uh put another one there that kind of maybe looks the same, but is mostly made out of like plastic and cardboard. I mean it's still yours, right? It's still in the same place. It's the stuff you use. I mean, doesn't like maritime salvage law apply here? Like the scraps become the possession of the person that picks them up and therefore it's it's not possessed by Theseus anymore. They're actually rendered back into pants for new cadets. Right. <laughs> Once it comes out of the buffer, they just push that along. Yeah. No, the, the goal would be to, you know, to make a nice present for Theseus and hand it back and say, hey, yeah, I made your ship. I fixed your ship back up. Here's your ship again. Oh, hey, your ship's been in the transporter buffer for 40 more years than, than is specced. Exactly. Here it is. It's <laughs> here, here it is doing again. a guest spot with Jordy on a Dyson sphere. Because exactly. we wanted to just jam a bunch of sci-fi shit into this one. 
Um, all sorry. together. But that kind of then gets back to that thing that I mentioned earlier of I really wish that they would kind of, you know, there's some things that I appreciate Trek just kind of going, we're just going to we're just going to have fun with it. We're going to toss around ideas and see what happens. And sometimes I wish that they would have a let's actually carry these implications over from one week, let alone season to the next because sometimes in Trek transporters are matter transporters and reconstitutors. Sometimes what they are specifically described in text in narrative as doing is disassembling your molecules carrying those molecules on an energy beam from one place to another. And sometimes what they are described as doing is taking the waveform pattern of your aggregated components, molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles, and then transposing that pattern, decomposing it, and then transposing the pattern itself onto another set of atoms, molecules, and subatomic components somewhere else. Why I believe you're discussing the Thomas Riker problem. Yes. Yeah, so, so you're making a distinction between whether or not a transporter transports the actual matter as energy that you were made of, of before, or whether it just transmits information and then other right. photons are coalesced back into your matter. Right. Could you keep track I mean, of the photons? That's, well, let's I mean, say you he, can, and that I mean, they do, because we got to wave our hands at some of the science, right? Like, if, if in, let's say, information is retained in the universe to the extent that that's plausible, which right. is, in theory, yes, if you got a sharp enough instrument or big enough magnifying glass, you can see it all, but... Right, and that's the kind of the question is the, you know, is the information retained? Because if the information is retained, then it doesn't. Like, it, if you could say the information is retained, and that even in the wave particle information set, what's happening is the same information is in one place as it was previously, that gives you yet a different set of outcomes. But if you're saying that, you know, for some people, this thing is, this is a very different outcome, right? To say that my atoms were decomposed, and then the information of those atoms was rewritten onto different atoms, through different atoms, with different atoms. The information was inscribed elsewhere. Uh, I had a book. I read that book. I memorized that book. I burned that book. I rewrote that book word for word. I bound it and put it on the exact same type of paper, and I put it on the exact same kind of binding, and I remade you know, the cover image all perfectly. Is it the same book? That question reads different for some people. Now, my answer to the ship of Theseus is it is its own answer, right? Like, no, not, <laughs> not helpful. You're going to have to do a little better than that, Mr. Philosophy Man. <laughs> the thing missing from that question is an abstract understanding of what language is, what real means, what it actually is to be an object, and right. what it actually is to understand an object, right? Like, it's a right. phenomenology question more than anything else. But a lot of people don't like think about thinking that right. way, right? We take for granted that we think. We take for granted that we recall things and can plan things. But these are actually wildly, unbelievably complicated tasks. Exactly. And even at the interior, what's it like kind of phenomenal experience kind of level, that's that's one part of it. But then we get to the question of we can go in either a drastically different or not at all different direction and say, you know, the, the Buddhist perspective on the self is that no matter what happens at any given time, you're always just a collection of patterns anyway. You're a collection of patterns and habits. And today you are this one and tomorrow you will be a different one. Are you still you? Are you synonymous to the you you were when you were born? 
No. Right. You <laughs> is a story that we tell ourselves every morning when we wake up. Or yeah. I, really. I exactly. tell a story. I tell myself every morning when I wake up. Right. It's a line you draw around a collection of patterns and habits, and you say, this is me, and that outside that line is not me. And so the question of the transporter is, even if what ends up happening is that your atoms are decomposed and the pattern of them is written on another set, that's already happening to you right now anyway. The yeah, transporter right. just speeds it up. So speaking of transporters, I have a few, um, I, have, I have a question, a, a list of people and a question. Game show um, alert! Game yeah. show alert! <laughs> we're, gonna, no. we're gonna do. We're gonna play the the famous new game show, person or not. Ah, yes. So, so here we go. <laughs> Spoiler um, alert! Damien's gonna say person for all of these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> were I a Tonga playing man, but uh... <laughs> all right. First contestant, Tuvix. Person, definitely. Riker, fake Riker. Which one's fake? Oh. Okay, well, clearly the fake one is Lieutenant Thomas Riker, who is a McKee agent and showed up on DS9, abused his credentials because he was pretending that one is the one that is the one created accidentally by the axe. By, ooh, actually, sorry. Yeah, you're right again. Quit influencing the judges. Yeah, well, I no. mean, distinguish them is the key, but... Exactly. No, the, you can distinguish them, sure, but which ones, if you're going to distinguish them by real and fake, which one's fake? Because maybe the one that's real is the one whose initial set of molecules got bounced back down onto the planet and lived their horrible, horrible life until they were found again. And maybe the one that's fake is the one whose pattern was replicated through the ion cloud that bounced their original molecules back down onto the planet. Mm. They're both real. They're both people. They're both fake oh, because they're both what an answer. sex objects. All right. Um, <laughs> this, mean, this one's a little bit of a stretch, but how about Moriarty? Definitely a person. Oh, cool. How about the 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 person he's trying to escape with that he's like fallen in love with? That is a, a very interesting question. The Countess is very interestingly framed in the series because of how she becomes who she is. Because she starts off as literally just a program. She is a real, a real doll. Yeah, exactly. But, Sorry, but what yeah. she is given to do within that is the same thing that creates Moriarty in the first place. Because he basically then reprograms the computer. Well... He asks the computer very nicely, actually, which is one of the things I love about Moriarty. He's very polite to the Enterprise computer. But he asks the computer to make her an equal to him, which means that if he's a person, then now she is too. And she understands that process in a way that he had to sort out for himself. Like she recognizes the steps of it along the way and even kind of highlights for, like in the conversation that she has, she highlights the idea that she she has gone from being a component of this story to being a person who is interested in how this story plays out. My answer to this is always for all of these, right? If you have to ask, are they a person uh, for any of them? My answer is yes. But it's like, it's that meme with the guy in space and then yes. there's another space dude behind him with a gun saying always has been. Like, yes. <laughs> because the question is, are people just collections of data points and, you know, patterns and, you know, not actually real, but ourselves synthetic? And it's like, yes, always have been. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right? Like the, the question of we have always had this question of what is the reality of the self? <laughs> what makes a self right. a self? What makes a person and a it's, person? It's a work of fiction. 
Right. It's a narrative, but it's like it's a narrative construction that then takes on very impactful and useful in many cases weight, right? And then yeah. we can do stuff with it and it makes changes in the world once we have that construction, but we should never forget that we constructed it and that it is yes. constructed by its intersections with other constructions like it. If we're able to to make that recognition and to change it, then that opens up our understanding for personness in all of these other kinds of places that we might otherwise not be comfortable recognizing it. So I actually want to take this in a different direction because to this point, we've really talked about artificial life forms becoming closer to human and achieving personhood. And and we've also talked about like the convergence or the separating of two individual people into one or separating one person into two, like in the case of Riker. But there's that episode of Deep Space Nine where uh, Vedic Burial has the accident on the mm-hmm. ship and they are you know julian's trying to save him and it gets to the point where the only way for him to continue to treat him is to do a positronic implant in his brain and he warns kira and cisco and everyone else he says if, you know this is going to start to change his personality and he's not going to be the same person anymore so that i think is an interesting perspective and ironically because i'm watching futurama there's also an episode of futurama that's very much like this where hermes is yes. trying to uh, upgrade himself so that he can compete with um, with automatic technology for his bureaucratic job and he eventually turns himself into a full robot and so like how does it work is, like is there a point where a person who starts off as we would understand a person today as flesh and blood could be altered with artificial technology to such an extent that they are no longer a person and become an artificial life form. I don't think so, but I would just like to hear your your take on that kind of concept. So I have angry thoughts about the idea that at a certain point, the replacement of your components makes you not you anymore. Yes. Because ship of Theseus. Like, I also... Bashir's a murderer. He murdered somebody. <laughs> like, the, the, the question of like, oh, hey, uh, Bashir, you're just gonna like... Somebody. It was a bunch of people. Yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> You're just gonna like jam these, you know, these things in here. Yeah, no. So it's like that. That question for me is like the why does it change? Or per- why would it? Yeah, the, the question of you know, we never really got a solid answer as to what makes a positronic matrix different from uh, a brain when lore can have emotions, um, right? But data can't. What what needed to happen in the emotion chip that went quote unquote wrong with lore, right? Uh, and eventually went nothing quote unquote, right. People do this shit all the time. Right. Like, like, human, humans no, are murderers. Nothing went wrong here. Like, <laughs> like, okay. I have so, probably like asteroid that killed the dinosaurs level spicy take here. Uh, <laughs> I think there is a consistent theme in all of the Star Trek universes, all of the series, all of them, that they are racist against androids and artificial life forms. They're racist. Oh no, I 100% agree. It is just racism. Literally, it is the same kind of like, they're just viscerally squicked out by the idea for reasons that are strictly based around disgust. They're completely illogical. They're completely based on it. And Bashir was doing genocide. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's absolutely true that, like, there's, I mean, the entire, I love Picard, though, I did. The entire kind of crux of the back end of Picard is about Starfleet's racism against artificial life. Like, specifically embodied artificial life, right? You mean Control was right? 
basically. I mean, control was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, Starfleet's entire take on artificial embodied, you know, machine consciousness is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, it's 100% like, oh, we, we don't trust them and we hate them. And so we will persecute them. And oh, my goodness, they've rebelled against that persecution. Whoever could have imagined that someone might do such a thing. It's just this massive, like, why, how could you, you're supposed to be, you know, one of the most advanced civilizations and you couldn't think through a story that is by the time of your existence 700 years old what are you doing it's it's obviously just this this massive set of like anthropomorphic bias towards this notion of human that isn't even borne out yes. by their relationships Thank with you. other alien lives because <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day what they don't want to admit to themselves is we're meat sacks we're animals and the dog's feelings are just as real and important as yours are no you can't just treat things like that because they're not human exactly they don't want to admit that they are doing this that they're being the oppressor to other conscious life forms right now they don't want to admit that to themselves I think um, Discovery does a really good job of kind of exploring like what was started in that Burial episode uh, of Deep Space Nine with the, the character. Is it Arium is her name? I, f- I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, the character who was just a regular human who um, suffered a horrific accident and was essentially became something closer to an android by the time they were done replacing all the parts so i I think definitely they they explore that a lot i don't know if you have any thoughts you want to share on on her character and that arc i was kind of disappointed in the fact that like once we finally got to know her that is what they were giving us rather than what could have been the first machine life alien species that we had gotten introduced to but given the direction they then took season two and you know a lot of the rest of the machine consciousness work they were doing it wouldn't have worked with the story they were trying to tell for her to be a representative of an embodied machine consciousness species but i wish that she had been that would have been for me a much more interesting story than the retread of replacing your organic parts with machine parts makes you less human Uh, i don't like that story because it really is pretty gross and ableist and kind of discounts the lived experience of a number of living human beings with prosthetics like and implants that are like alive right now like there's a, a conversation to be had about the ways in which medical procedures medical devices implantations prosthetics replacements change our understanding of ourselves right like there is a conversation that we have about that and you can talk to the chronic illness disability community the amputee community about that conversation and get the well the lived experience of the people living that experience you can find out what it is that they think about that about themselves and for themselves and within their community but like this notion that it just piece by piece strips away your humanity or or your your real personness is pretty gross and i'm very tired of seeing a story a narrative a franchise a universe a narrative universe which should know better by now continuing to just kind of fuck up and fail on that score people the only good ai story i've ever seen was bicentennial man i mean bicentennial man was definitely a a very like i really appreciated the the inversion 
question of that. I wouldn't call it the only good one I've seen, but that's because I love lots of AI stories. Uh, And I feel like there are a lot of really interesting and nuanced ones that do good work for, like, especially today, that take the question of what's been missing from these stories very seriously. Like, there's there's a number of, of writers out there today that I like their work on these kinds of things I, I really love. And I just wish that, again, I feel like Trek should know better by now. Like, they've been <laughs> they've been having this conversation yeah. that existed within the, the space of these conversations for so long that to continue to go in that same direction without ever, you know, like they trouble so many other of their kind of preconceptions from earlier series in their later series, right? Like they, they go back and they reinvestigate and question a lot of the kinds of assumptions and decisions of previous generations of Starfleet officers uh, in narrative. But like the AI perspective that they have is only ever troubled accidentally. It's only ever kind of on the back end uh, by happenstance, you know. We have this religious attachment to it, you know, to selfhood, yeah. to the idea that we have a self. I I loved the point that you were making about um, how all of these questions in the way that it's been presented in Trek kind of discounts the lived experiences of people with artificial implants and, you know, with with chronic illnesses and that kind of thing. Because it really makes me think about Geordi. Um, There was that great episode in in TNG where they, uh, and I don't remember which season it is, but I think it was one of the early ones where they meet a society where essentially everyone's genetically engineered so that they Mm -hmm. don't have quote unquote imperfections. And uh, one of the scientists or engineers he's working with asks him like, you know, why don't you why don't you just get new eyes you know and, and there's a whole discussion about how he's happy with who he is and that he didn't feel like there was anything wrong with with him just because he had a different experience with his eyesight than others and he has and he relies on artificial technology to uh, to help him navigate the world but i just wanted to introduce that point yeah no and that's like that's one of the two or three specific points where like the lived experience of disability is given space in trek to really just potentially just be another way of living life right it's not oh this is something we have to fix or oh it's such a tragedy or oh it makes them you know uh, superhuman i mean in jordy's case his visor does kind of go the other direction and make him superhuman but well know, that episode yeah. definitely concludes with him actually dunking on their lying because he's like no no i've seen the giant crack in your space dome the whole time yeah. i can like i can see that like it's y'all right just lying to us i knew yep. that what did we yeah, do exactly and so, but like this, like there's a couple of other places like in Deep Space Nine when, you know, we meet the representative from the alien race who they don't use their legs to locomote. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not upright walking people. They float and, you know, she's actually functionally disabled by the artificial gravity of Deep Space Nine itself. And they have to refit her rooms to not have gravity in the same way so that she can actually move around well. Like that's one of the only times that like this kind of systematic, structural, imposed disability uh, imposed by the environment, imposed by the society is kind of really interrogated within Trek universe, right? Like this idea that like this person would be considered disabled on Earth or within Starfleet society, and they are not by their own standards. And in fact, their their lived experience allows them to be better suited for many things that have to happen in space. And we have to figure out a way to, to reconcile those understandings. One of my favorite representations of that kind of thing is in, uh, what is it, Islands in the Sky by Arthur Clarke. 
Mm-hmm. It's the, he like so this is kid he gets to go on the space station it's basically like he wins a contest to get to go to the space station and it's like the 1950s so none of this has happened yet even a little bit but he's like oh you sit at the desk with the guy and he just gets up and just pulls himself with his big old arms and oh that is the extent of, he had he has had both of his legs amputated in an accident of some kind but he is great at operating on this space station he lives here and will probably die here because it is perfect for him because like right. all he has to do is swing himself around like everyone else does but he just has no extra clearance to have to break i mean like it is convenient for him to live in this place and he is the master of it for that or right. among other reasons but yeah like and that's just a, a i don't know compared to all but i mean in star trek it like everything else it's the 50s it messes some stuff up but star trek gets it's like oh how many times has jordy's eyeglasses been hacked because every time they do that, yeah, they still tie you back to, oh, well, you're broken. Well, sorry, we can, uh, oh, everyone hacked your glasses and now we can see through your eyes and we're right. going to figure out your shield coefficient or whatever. Yeah, it is a weakness as much as it's a strength. Yeah. You know, in defense of Trek, though, and this is like including the modern Treks, the social model of disability is a pretty new concept. Yeah. Like it, it's a new idea for thinking about disability, right? Because before it's, it was really just about like, to what extent could you continue to produce and function in a vacuum? Right. Uh, and there have been huge leaps in our understanding of a person and the relationship between a person and a community that really only have happened in the last like 20, 30 years. And those ideas themselves have only started to really permeate pop culture in the last like one or two years even like with discovery uh so i i think like there's just sort of a necessary delay between when we can even think to articulate these kinds of systems and power dynamics and when we can expect those to be represented in media to an extent i definitely i definitely agree that like it takes a while like you said it takes a while for these things to percolate right like we got to get awareness of them before people can write about them right but there's even and has been for a, a while like there there are collectives of people who do write from you know the disability perspective right like people who are disabled who write science fiction oh yeah i mean i talk about disability in this space all the time because yeah. like somebody has to right Exactly. People aren't going to like advocate for me, for me. I have to do it for myself. (laughs) Yeah. And that's exactly the thing is like in a real way, when we talk about these, these questions, like it becomes a meta thing because we're talking not just about the presentation of it on the screen. We're not just talking about disabled people's lives on screen. We're talking about who thinks to write about disabled people's lives to put them on screen in the first place. Right. And so who's, who's in the writer's room, who's in the production studio, who's actually like commissioning stories. That gets to the core of what this podcast is about, right? We have always been trying to, you know, as its sort of primary thesis statement, prove that narrative and storytelling is how we get from here to there, you know? Right. And that's exactly it. And so it's like, obviously, I love Trek. And like, that's what I kind of mean by I wish that it knew better by now. And like, I want to give it the space to continue to learn and to grow. But every so often, even in the newer iterations, it does things that it's like, oh, that's a lesson you should have learned quite some time ago. Um, Why are you still doing that? And so the question of we just got this representation in the last season of Discovery just now, right? Like we just got the representation of someone in a wheelchair, like living their life. Um, yeah. it was, uh, un- they were on in the background, right? Yeah. In the same way that at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned the guy in a dress, right? right? It's there in the background, but actually centering those characters is definitely a recent development. Exactly. And that was like a specific change because that actor 
has become disabled over his time of working in Star Trek. Like he was yeah. in the first couple of seasons of Discovery. He right. was in the background. He was in Klingon makeup, but he became disabled between mm -hmm. season two and season three. And he became disabled due to a chronic illness. I believe he has multiple yeah. sclerosis. I need to look that up uh, to be sure. But like, so this intersection of chronic illness and disability experience with like the representations that we're seeing yeah. on screen, if that hadn't happened, how long would it have been before we saw someone in a wheelchair on screen in a Trek series? Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, you're speaking if I can sort of self-disclose here, you're speaking directly to my personal experience here. I have a degenerative genetic disorder that means my body physically cannot make collagen correctly, right? So like I can't just take a collagen supplement. Like my body, the DNA doesn't know how to write collagen proteins correctly. It's called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I am reaching the stage, I'm in my early 30s, and I am now reaching the stage of my life where I have to seriously start talking about mobility devices and like braces and stuff like that. I make this joke about it because that's how I cope with the reality of being in constant pain, right? But like, I'm going to start wearing corsets instead of back braces because back braces are pitiful and corsets are threatening, right? Sure. But I have to right. make these choices now, right? I have to make these choices of how I'm going to incorporate visible disability into my life and the consequences of that, the way that it'll impact my ability to campaign, to lead people, because so much is tied up in specifically physical ability, right? And visibility. And, you know, so many people do not understand it until it is right in front of them. And I mean, that's that's just the nature of it, right? You can't expect somebody to understand something they haven't really seen a story about. But it's it's the exact same system in both right. cases, right? Of how do you present this happening? Are you telling these stories? Is it available to people as a narrative structure in their life? Because when you see it, when there is a person you know where you can connect it to your life or at the very least to a story you have developed an empathetic connection with, right? If you can connect it that way, then that person is no longer an other, right? That is a member of your community. You can conceive of them as a member of your community and you no longer resent them for their need. You know, you no longer resent them for their difference because you have incorporated them into yourself. And it, that's the biggest problem, right? Of all of this, of all organizing, of all sort of leftist ideology versus praxis, right? It's like, how do we make these stories available to people? Right. Well, one of the ways we do it is by being right about things. And one of the ways we do that is by looking it up. And uh, so that that was that is Kenneth yeah. Mitchell. And he actually has, yeah. he has ALS just like yeah. my grandmother did. But uh, just sorry, since that came up. But no, this is it is a difficult way to. Yeah. So we got a yeah. couple more medical sort of things to play with. We've got some more LSD left in the old. Um, what are these called? Medical replicators on a little stick here. <laughs> Hypo spray. Hypo spray. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's way better than a bong rip. These are great. Oh, you can make cocaine with this. Oh, shit. Wood. Turn it to laudanum. Um, Honestly, though, wood. Yeah, laudanum's great. That's like, you notice they made laudanum illegal. And then when we're like, hey, we need to vote now. Hold on. Everyone's off cocaine, heroin, cannabis all the time. And we've noticed that we're mad. And it's like, good yep. call. That was why we were giving you all that. Putting it right in your beverages. <laughs> we have some more medical anomalies out in the world. We got, I mean, one of my favorites is the trill because why does the trill have a cat sized hole in their abdomen just ready to go? Among other less like practical matters, there's more philosophical bits. There's a, yeah, I, I like them a lot. Amy, you were thinking about talking about this a little bit. 
Well, yeah, Damien, you just kind of blew my mind with this ship of Theseus as as a sort of vehicle for thinking about identity. I'm I'm like, you know, the implications for the Trill experience or, you right. know, the trans experience I'm projecting onto the Trill, you know? <laughs> you are not the only person who sees the trans experience in the Trill. The casting department gets it too. Even. Yeah, exactly. Like literally every person I know who, you know, thinks about Star Trek and trans lived experience for any reason, whether because it is their own experience or the experience of people they love they see that connection it's right there it's just right there <laughs> just wish hrt actually made you shorter <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> oh i say lean way into the david Duchovny on twin peaks and put the heels on but since oh. we're taking timely depictions of the thing but yeah you don't get a lot besides trek on in this you know please though please they yeah so yeah no like the that space is one of the the really interesting things to think about because the the trill answer to the ship of theseus is shrug like it's like the question you're asking fundamentally like when we say you know are you still you the question that for for them is like yes and no like i mean definitely yes but also definitely not in the way that you seem to mean it so like when we talk about this notion of like you know identity and the, the question of who we are and and we pose that in the, the trill space that's like a real real grappling with this notion like self isn't what we think it is self isn't you know the exact same thing as only exactly your memories it's not the exact same thing as only exactly your lived experience because you know we can put that into uh, a combination with you know a number of other selves a number of other lived experiences and then what is that is that still you you know are you still you once you are you plus one you plus two you plus 18 you plus seven generations of lives and are you still recognizably you in that space um even if you weren't taking those memories out in the form of uh, a symbiote slug and putting it inside somebody else for them to add to that lineage even if it was just you living that long one body changing ish growing ish living for centuries would you still be recognizably yourself to the people who know you today by the end of that time i want to draw a connection here actually to tbi uh, I want to talk about traumatic brain injury for mm -hmm. like a second here, right? Because you hear this a lot. And like Phineas Gage is sort of the classic example of this. The guy got a pick just sort of thrown through his prefrontal cortex uh, and his personality changed. And he went from being this like pretty chill dude to just this like really impulsive, really aggressive, really angry person. And that was like the only thing that changed, right? And that was part of how they figured out where emotions get processed and how these things work because of literally this dude's brain was destroyed in this place. Nowadays, we can do it like temporarily with transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is extremely cool, but smaller, less permanent than like exactly. a steel. Much spike, less permanent. Right? Yeah. yeah, here, don't have to put a railroad spike in your brain. Like, I don't know, emotions somewhere in this cylinder-shaped area in your head. Like Yeah, yeah. But I do want to bring it up because so many people who have a loved one with TBI have said in some manner or another, the person I loved is gone, and I've had to learn how to love this new person. And I do think there's something to that, right? Like, if you shift the system too quickly, right, it stops being the same. And that gets to the question of the integration, right? Like this is what we were talking about before, and it's like really pertinent with the the trill perspective as well. The speed at which that person becomes the same but different is jarring for us as you know people on the outside. 
right? For the person on the inside, that continuity is, for the most part, usually going to be a continuity of experience. I mean, there's questions of the, the discontinuity of our own experience in the cases of traumatic brain injuries that cause uh, memory loss, um, that cause shifts in uh, what we can identify. But that's the same question from the other side. Right, like there's a there's that sudden shift in what we relate to, but when it's the person themselves, when somebody gets in Trek universe, when a trillionaire gets transferred, their family, their you know loved ones have to go through a radical reformation of what it means to uh, relate to that person. And then, if you are a friend of that person, but not too good a friend, I guess, because if you're too good a friend, then you can't associate with them anymore. But if you're a friend of that person, you can then try to get a sense of who they are now, of what their life is now and that will be jarring for you but it's for that person it is still them this is a change that has happened but it is who i am and that change is also a part of me so this is what i mean when the trill like the answer to the ship of theseus problem is a shrug right like change is part of it the fact that i am this today and i may be something else tomorrow i am who i am right now and you know me in this way and these parts of me are prominent but tomorrow other parts might be. Tomorrow, something else might be at the forefront of me. Tomorrow, something you've never seen before might be part of me. And that's just the way it is. That's just life is in a real sense. I mean, like you can draw parallels, not the exact same, but there's real parallels to the kind of the Buddhist perspective of identity and change, right? Everything is changing always anyway. Right. Who I am right now will always change. Yeah. Such as the Tao. Right. Like there will always be some new thing in me and whether you are there to witness it or not, it will still be true. I, I would argue that in the case of the Trills, I think it's also jarring for the host of the the, the symbiont as well. It's not as yeah. jarring as, as I think you're absolutely correct. It's it's totally jarring for people on the outside of that experience. But, you know, they, they also explore a lot um, in the character of Dax about how there is a transition period for the the people that get the new host to sort of get used to having all this new information, even though in Zia's case, she trained for years to prepare yes. to become a host and and then in Ezri's case it was like oh you're you're a trill here you go have a symbiont um so that's that is crucial actually you you raise a really really kind of massively important point right there trill trained for years for this yeah, so e even though, but even despite of that, that training and preparation, like the actual experience of receiving the symbiont and, and having all these extra lifetimes of experience and become merged with your consciousness, it's still like something that they have to have an adjustment period to. Also, don't go fuck your ex's exes or your fake your as right. <laughs> like, but that's that's precisely it, though. It's like most Trill get that space, right? They get that time to do the whole you go to 11 years of multiple personality college. Right. Here's here's who I am now. Here's my life. Here's what I get to do. And then there's that specific, you know, religious ceremony they go through where they like go through and meet the people that they used to be. And that's all part of it. And it's supposed to be this kind of very like intentional way of, of engaging with what it is to be a trill. Most trill we meet after Jadzia, all the trill, like two thirds of the trill we've ever met, like and spent a lot of time with in, in Trek thus far, have been traumatic recipients of trill life. Oh, yeah, because like the number of people that try and kidnap Jadzia because they want her abdomen kitty. Yes. Oh, and Jesus, Paul. <laughs> what a way to put that. <laughs> well, do you think that's one of like the great Star Trek chicken outs? 
you know, where they like turn away from I, yeah. from really confronting something that they could be progressive about. I think it is, unfortunately. And I think it's one of the things where it's like, if you spend more time, if we like, we got most of the series with Jedzia, and I wish that the things that happened that caused that fallout hadn't happened. But I think that one of the things that we could have really and should have really spent a lot more time with is this question of, you know, what is it that the people in their former lives do, right? Like we have yeah. this rule of non-association amongst the Trill and their former loved ones because right. those strong emotions can take over over who you used to be and bring out elements of and like from what we've seen uh that wasn't really that bad all that really happened was that Jadzia got down with her ex like that's okay oh no like that yeah, wasn't but if you just started being Curzon just rolled back into being Curzon Right. That's a, that's possible. That was a thing you could have just like, kept a crime syndicate. The Dax could just be a weird mafia, which would be like every, that's every symbiote's right, I guess. Any abdomen kitty can want what yeah. it wants. However you want to live your little, you know, body slug life. No, your millennia right. long <laughs> abdominal kitty. Okay, look. so I have, I have two hot takes about this. One, the symbiotes are actually just like organically developed flash drives so whatever but two the reason these stories are all traumatic is because you cannot tell an honest story about transitioning without talking about the social trauma of it with about the with the people you leave behind because they just can't get with it you know or the the people who will now actively attack you because of it like i think you know discovery has for once you know sealed it and made it absolutely you know unambiguously clear that trill is about transition right the, the trill experience is about transition transitioning and being trans and they made the characters themselves trans so people can't pretend it's not anymore which i kind of appreciate actually yeah no that was good yeah, like it's no longer subtext, right? It's just there. And great, love it. But like, you cannot tell that story without talking about trauma at this stage, you know, without talking about the harm people are causing to trans people every day, casually, without even noticing it. Right. And so one of the things that would be good, but difficult, like in terms of like, if Discovery is going to hopefully continue to, you know, center trans lived experience as uh, a com major component of two characters on their show, that one of the things that would be, again, good, but difficult to do is to spend some time talking about exactly what's different in the Star Trek universe to make it such that that trauma isn't the case. Like they did a really good job of just accepting and, you know, going, okay, this person's got they, them pronouns and we recognize that and we move forward. And that was important. And it, it was a wonderful moment of just general acceptance of the truth of a person. But what it doesn't do is give us that recognition, that understanding that, yes, this is the case at this point, 1300 years into the future <laughs> from where we currently are, but it wasn't the case. And that's important to recognize that we have people today who don't get access to that level of love and acceptance for who they are. Well, you know where people can find love and acceptance for who they are. That's right. Playing games on podcasts. So we're reaching that we're reaching the conclusion of the episode because you can see like how long it's been. It's been like, yes, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Gay Space Communism. Please check out the Not Safe for Wonks or Not Safe Media, Not Safe for Wonks, all of the things. There's a link in the show notes. We appreciate your time. There's probably a Patreon you should give slip little strips of Latinum into just like the head of the Nagus and uh, signing off. Live long and prosper, team. Y'all be good.